Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Joel. I'm a grateful and blessed alcoholic, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Janesta, for asking me. Little do you realize, if you give an Irish alcoholic 50 minutes to talk about himself and alcohol, you're lucky if you'll get away in a couple of hours. Because <laughs> I love talking about Joe, you know. But in the past, all I ever spoke was bullshit. I try not to do the same today. And I say I'm blessed. You know, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I'm blessed because I don't need to deaden feelings or I don't need to use alcohol to blot things out anymore. I've learned to go through difficulties without a drink. And I've learned how to handle life. I was reading the daily reflection for today. It's about passing this message to other alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. So yesterday... Um, I was asked a while ago if I would go and give a, a talk to a class of student counselors, addiction counselors. Um, to say I was nervous, you know, I can speak in front of a room of alcoholics because we're all the same. You know me, you know, you know the way we talk. But to speak to a room, and there's only about two dozen you know, of different ages. It was a little bit daunting to start off with. But I was given 30 minutes and it went to an hour and a bit, you know, and uh, I hope I was able to pass on to them a message of what I was like as an alcoholic. You know, so it's not all described in a book. And our founder in one of his talks to one of the early conferences, he did mention about having helpful cooperation with our friends who can reach the still-suffering alcoholic that we can't. You know, there's a lot of routes open to us. And that was one of them, you know. So it's not in my hands, it's in my higher power's hands. <laughs> Just a brief I'm in the fortunate position today that my sobriety period is actually slightly longer than my drinking period. I drank for nearly 30 years. And my sobriety, I reached that on the 1st of January last year. So today I'm 11,294 days sober through the grace of God and each and every one of you here you know we may not have met before but because of you this fellowship is alive and kicking and I need this fellowship more today than I've ever done you know I was brought up in Ireland Irish Catholic and my dad liked to drink there was always drink in our house you know I learned a lot in recovery about my family 
which contradicted every perception that I had. You know, we had a, I had a good childhood looking back with sober eyes. But growing up, I'm the eldest of four boys. I was the one who got the cane, who got the slap, who got the belt. You know, and the people who educated me had their own methods of torture, and I, I got plenty of that. My younger brothers, surprisingly, didn't suffer the same as I did. And I think now it's because they actually didn't behave as I did. You know, they, they behaved as they were expected. Um, I was given a name when I was a few months old by my grandfather. I, he called me a rebel. And I lived rebelliously, subconsciously, but I did it, you know. And I learned to be an actor at a very, very young age. And by acting, what I mean is that if I thought somebody was useful to me, a relative was good to me and kind to me, then I would be a good boy. If I thought a relative was of no benefit to me whatsoever, my behavior was totally different. So I was two people. And, you know, looking back, or even now when I speak to some of them, or I used to before they all passed away, you know, the one crowd would say, I was a saint. And the other said I was the devil in a pair of trousers. You know, it's just the same with teachers. I presented two different faces, depending on who they were. And that was before alcohol. Now, my dad liked to drink. And as I said, there was always booze in our house. But I learned in sobriety he wasn't an alcoholic. You know, he, he had his couple, he had his routine every night. I think I only ever saw him drunk once in my life. My mum was an alcoholic, and I never knew that. <laughs> because Joe, being real alcoholic or whatever, self-centered to the extreme. I never noticed what was going on around me. You know, at an early age, I, I, I play drums. I still do today. I joined a, a rock group in school holidays and weekends from around the same time I picked up a drink from the age of 11. You know, and I'd come home after playing at a gig, or if there's any old Irish people here, we used to play at a hop. And um, I would find my mother asleep on our kitchen floor. My mum was a very frail lady. You know, 12, 13-year-old, I would pick her up and put her to bed. My head was telling me, aren't I lucky that mum has tried to stay awake to make sure number one son was home safe and sound? I didn't realize she was pissed and passed out. My dad just left her there. He never enabled her. He never enabled me, you know. I'm doubly blessed that my mother, at the age of 40, found this fellowship. And she found this fellowship at the same time, or roughly the same time, as I suffered the first serious negative consequence of my drinking. 
I went out one evening with a group of friends. I was age 15. And the next thing I remember was a few days later coming through in my parents' bed with the doctor and the priest and my parents on their knees. And I'd been told I had the last rites. I had alcoholic poisoning. I drank so much brandy in a short space of time. You know, and uh, I, um, I wasn't told off, surprisingly, for once. I have flashbacks of being found on the floor in a pile of vomit and being beaten by a broom uh, because apparently I attacked both my parents. But that was it. That's all I can remember. But when I came round, it was on a, a morning, and you know, I said to my father, I'll never do that again. That was the first time of millions that I said I will never do it again. And that particular one lasted till that evening because we were playing the group I was in. We were actually playing that night in a, a local mental hospital um, where I found out my mum used to go in and rescue alcoholics and bring them home. But that night I had a case of beer by my drum kit to get me through the night. And two years later, I was 17, I'd finished my O-levels, I was going on to A-level or the equivalent, and I got thrown out of school um, because it was kind of the holiday period and I used to let my hair grow. You wouldn't believe it today, but I used to have long hair. And um, a new teacher who didn't know my family, my dad was exceptionally influential in our hometown. He was a, a magistrate, a politician, and a shopkeeper. So whenever I got in trouble, he'd get me out of it. So I never told him I got thrown out of school. There was two of us, two Joes, were told to go home and come back when we got our hair cut. My friend got his hair cut and went back and completed his education. 35 years later, there was a picture in our local paper um, with a haircut like I've got now and shaking hands with the teacher who'd thrown me out. And the caption was, student returns and asks teacher if his hair is short enough now. You know, so I never went back. I left Ireland or I was thrown out of Ireland. You know, my parents got me a job in Scotland at 17. And because then the rains were off, Joe drank. I learned a few bits about drinking, but I had a, I developed a capacity early on for large amounts. And also it didn't matter what it was, spirits, lager or beer, it was all the same. Just give me as much as I could take. And I didn't suffer considerably from hangovers. And I think partly because I was never fully sober, you know, and I had a good career that only lasted a year or so. And I had to leave that because of my drinking. And I went and joined um, the Air Force here in the UK. Much to my parents' annoyance, I should have gone and joined the services in, in Ireland. I had been in the Irish Reserves in the Army for a while. 
But I joined the RAF, and it was like I had died and gone to heaven for this alcoholic, because suddenly I am at a place where the crowd I work for supply the clothes I have to wear and tell me what to wear every day, so I didn't have that decision to make. They supplied a bed. They supplied three meals a day and a cheap bar in the evening. So this guy was made up, really was made up, you know. I was drunk every night. I got a good career in the Air Force as well, you know. That done me well in sobriety. But I wasn't appreciative then. And looking back now, I ruined it all a year after my first posting. I met this girl and being the sort of impatient person I am. For some reason, I asked her to marry me and she said yes. And I rang my parents and told them I was getting married. And a week later, I was in a pub where I was stationed and my father walked in with a, a relative from London. And he informed me he had spoken to that girl and told her I wasn't getting married. I was 19. And I politely informed him, because I was brave, I had a few beers inside me, that I was an adult and I'm getting married. To this day, I honestly believe if my father had said to me, right, son, you're getting married, your mum and I will organise it, you get married in Ireland, we'll do this, that and the other, I wouldn't have done it. But because he told me I wasn't, I did. You know, and uh, shortly afterwards, you know, she got pregnant and um, we had a son. And then I got sent to Germany, where if I thought I'd died and gone to heaven when I first joined the RAF, I'd died, gone to heaven, been given a halo and a pair of wings, because the booze was so cheap. So, so cheap. And I just, I forgot that I had a, a wife and son in England, and I just lived a single life. I had drink in my work fridge. I couldn't get out of bed without a large vodka or a large brandy in the morning. And I was only in my 20s, 21. Eventually, my wife came out and she um, stayed. But about a year later, I had a, a serious crash. And um, she had left because of my drinking, going back to the UK. And I, I got court-martialed. But whilst waiting for the court-martial to happen, I got put in, and I worked in a hospital, and they put me into the psychiatric ward because they discovered I had damaged my liver, and they reckoned I had a few months to live if I'd have carried on. And I'm in this psychiatric ward on Librium and Logactyl and vodka. And two guys one night came to visit me, two Germans, who informed me they were from Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, I was oh, I was mortified that anyone would think I was an alcoholic. And I said to them, if your wife had left you in a strange country and took your child with her, you drink like I did. So go away. It wasn't that she left because of my drinking. 
drink for me was never the cause of any of my problems. It was the solution, and it was my companion to get me through them. It didn't cause the problem. Everyone else did, you know. But I got sent back from Germany after my court-martial, and the Air Force gave me 18 months to stop drinking. Uh, instead, I carried on drinking, and somehow we had another child, a daughter. But after five years in, in the Air Force, I got thrown out because, I naturally, I'm not going to stop drinking. And shortly after getting thrown out, I left my wife and children with her parents in, in North Wales. And I, I bought a house in the Midlands of, of England and got a job working in a factory as an electrician. And we used to go to the pub over lunchtime and of an evening. And in the end, I thought, I can't stand all this. I didn't like where I was. I walked out and I moved down to London. I sent a message to my wife in the keys of the house. To this day, I don't know what happened. You know, that was many, many years ago. That was in about 1976. I mean, he said, I just left the house. I don't know if it's still empty or whatever. And um, we got divorced. And she remarried to a military policeman. And, and I remember I had to go to court to sign. He wanted to adopt my two children. So that was another responsibility off my hands. I signed that paperwork. And I proceeded to meet someone else and take them captive and get married. And this lady, this particular lady, liked to drink. And her family loved to drink. And by this time, I had my own haulage business. I was, I became exceptionally rich for a short period. And you know, this lady was a party person. She really was. But for some reason known only to this alcoholic, I still had to go to the pub on my own and couldn't leave it before closing time which meant there was a lot of arguments around my drinking. And then my drinking also led to numerous affairs. And uh, as a result of that, we ended up getting divorced. And I, and I loved that lady. She was, she was a lovely lady. But shortly after that, because, you know, I've doped up to the eyebrows with drink, and uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I only ever tried drugs once. That's not part of my story. I, I tried drugs, coke or something one night. I was out of my head for a week and sick for another week and never touched it again. Luckily, I wouldn't be here to tell the tale. But then I met somebody who was a lot younger than me. And of course, you know, the drink played a big part. She would come around the country and around Europe in my lorry with me and stuff like that. And, but then one day in an in a alcoholic haze or whatever it was, I decided to sell the business and sell my truck. Uh, prior to that, I did a lot of work in Europe. And I only recalled this the other day. I've done a lot of my, my drinking that was done in blackout. So I can't remember stuff, but I have been told that I got very, very vicious when I was drinking, my, my eyes would change color. 
my close friends knew when to leave me. But the, the worst in my memory or what I've been told or what I know about, I was leaving Italy. I'd, I'd been in Italy for a couple of weeks and I was at a, a truck stop on a, near the Italian-French border the night before. I remember getting in my truck at 6 a.m. to head towards through France, heading back to catch the ferry to the UK. I remember getting in the lorry. My next conscious thought was waking up in Paris. I have no recollection of going through French customs, Italian customs. Going by the receipts I had, I'd stopped for fuel a couple of times, I'd eaten, but in total blackout. Absolutely. Uh, to this day, I don't know what chaos I may have caused. You know, so I don't do that today, you know. But I sold that, and then a tax man was getting at me and other people. So in 1983, I came into this fellowship. I did not believe I was an alcoholic. I didn't want to stop drinking in any shape or form. I just wanted to get people off my back for a while, like the girlfriend was on my case, this, that, and the other. And I came in to a Tuesday meeting in a place called Bournemouth, which is not far from where I now live. And the first night there, you know, I'm greeted by people and particular gentlemen, you know, at the end of the meeting came and spoke to me and said, you know, you've got to have a sponsor, I'm going to help you. And God loved that person who tried to help me. But the greatest problem anybody has is the one they won't accept they have. And I did not have a problem with alcohol. And this guy tried to help me. And nearly 24-7, he was on my case. Am I doing this? Am I doing that? And I used to drive him round and I'd, I'd meet him in the supermarket and he'd be asking me about... Uh, What's my program? Am I, have I done what I'm asking? It literally got on my nerves. And then one night, three months later, I decided that I've had enough. And I left that meeting on a Tuesday night, determined to go for a couple of drinks. And at midnight, or just after midnight, I had to ring somebody or get casualty to ring one of the members to pick me up. I had been found drunk in my car with a Bowie knife stuck in my arm where I tried to cut my arm off and I still got the scar. It's a memory that I, physical memory of that night. It took me nine years to get back. Still didn't know there was a problem. Now, until then, you know, my life had been okay. I had a fortune. You know, but I had no happiness. I I was looking at life the wrong way. You know, and everything I loved, I'd lost. 1981, my mother died. I didn't even know she'd been ill. She was 16 years sober when she died. She was age 56. I only found out a month or two before she died. And at her funeral, I was drunk. And my dad 
had the local police watching me to make sure I didn't sort of start any fights. But what I did do was tell them exactly what I thought of him and my three younger brothers. And I told them I'm changing my name and you lot will never see me again. You know, and uh, it's three or four years before I went back to Ireland. But 1980, the end of 1983, I thought, I've got to do something. And I was offered a job in the Falkland Islands, going back to my heavy haulage days. And I'd never heard of the Falklands till the war. But I thought to myself that I'll go down there. I'd sort of investigated or researched where I was going to be working. And we were going to build a new airport miles from anywhere. So in Joe's head, that I go down for a year or two, won't drink, I'll save money, and I'll come back and start the business again. So I flew down to, we flew to the Ascension Islands first, and I had a week there, drunk all the time. And then landed in the Falklands, drunk the first night. Then we were taken out to the camp. And I met like-minded people. So the first thing we did was convert a shipping container into a bar. And we realized that wasn't big enough. So we built a bigger bar. You know, at the end of a year, they gave me a one-way ticket back to the UK and hadn't saved any money. But when I got back, I had still had quite a bit. My girlfriend and I went off um, to Tenerife for a month and sunshine and booze. And I came back and started working. And then she told me she was pregnant. So marriage number three. You know, marriage number three. But then I lost my license. She was pregnant when I lost my license for the first time in the UK. I got a job in a bar when I lost my license. Good job for an alky. And um, I drank 24-7. I was never sober. And I did that. Then I got my license back and I went back. Lorry driving again. And then in 19... 1990. I was going out for a drink one evening. My daughter was born then. And um, I got stopped by the police on the way out. And I was three times the limit. Today I'm grateful to those coppers who stopped me. I really and truthfully am grateful. Because that sort of speeded up my journey to my rock bottom. Because all through 1991, I did some casual work and stuff like that. Then I got a big check for industrial injuries, you know, and I, I wasted the whole of that. And my wife then decided, you know, enough is enough. My daughter was four and a half, the same age as my son was when I walked out on him and his sister. And she applied for a divorce and I got the papers and it said 
cause, like irreconcilable difference, he's an alcoholic and he's causing chaos. And I remember saying to her, look, change that. Tell them I'm having an affair or whatever. She said, no, because you're, you're a piss artist. Excuse my language. You're a drunk. And I had to leave the, the matrimonial home. We got divorced in, in the middle of um, early 1991. And I went up to the Midlands to Shropshire to my cousin. I'd stayed my welcome, and for the last six months of 1991, I was homeless. I had a, a room in a hostel, but you had to be in for 10 o'clock in the evening because the bar was still open. I couldn't make 10 o'clock. So I would break into garages and outhouses or whatever. You know, it was cold. It was this time of the year, I can remember it. There was a lot of snow. But Christmas, 1991, I, I got to live back down to spend the Christmas period with my ex and my daughter and my ex's parents. I arrived drunk Christmas Eve, as I was one to. Stayed that way. Caused a lot of trouble. And then New Year's Day, January the 1st, 1992, I picked up a bottle that was wrapped up, that was given to her by somebody. And um, I went for a walk, and, and that was a bottle of three barrels cognac. Now, uh, 1972, 20 years beforehand, when I was given this couple of months to live, and I recovered. I swore I'll never drink brandy again, because if I did, I'll become an alcoholic. I'll drink everything else. I never drank indoors, surprisingly, after I left Germany, because if I drank indoors, I'd become an alcoholic. But I wasn't going to touch brandy ever again. But this New Year's morning, it was a bottle of cognac. And I remember walking, going for a walk with this bottle. I just felt dead. And... I wouldn't drink from the bottle. And even today, if I'm out for a meal or something and I see people drinking from bottles, it just turns me. Something I could never do. I had a hip flask. I was pouring it from the bottle into the hip flask and drinking it. You know, it was crazy stuff. That bottle of brandy went in about an hour or so. And I went back to the, the flat. It had had no effect whatsoever. None at all. I was spiritually and mentally dead, devoid of feeling. The brandy hadn't touched me in any shape or form. But I never, ever wanted to stop drinking. There was never a thought that I was going to stop. I didn't realize that was my last drink. You know, it never entered my head that that may be my last drink. But I left the family and I hitchhiked back up to Shrewsbury. Took me most of a day. And I, looking back now, I don't know if many of you can remember a film with Daniel Nielsen called Airplane. And there's a guy in it when he was telling people his story that 
the old lady hung herself and someone else set fire to themselves and whatever. Well, whoever gave me lifts that day got both barrels of the poor Joe and how hard done by he was that everybody hates his guts and all of that, all the way back up to this place. You know? Six days later, the pain, I was the mental pain and despair that I was suffering brought me to the decision that the world will be better off without me. You know, and I consciously went to various outlets to get paracetamols. I knew my cousin was away, so I broke into her house. They found empty, 96 empty things of paracetamol. Now, surprisingly, when I opened her drinks cupboard, I picked up a big bottle of Coke and not the bottle of Irish whiskey to take these tablets. And then I'm on the telephone to Samaritans. And, well, I know today where the number came from, but at that time, I've no recollection of where the number came from or how I came to be on the phone. But I can recollect this very calm lady saying, telling me I could open the door. There was somebody knocking on the window. They had found me. And they got me to a doctor who got me committed to a place that's called Shropshire's Lunatic Asylum. It looked worse than any of the prisons that I had been in because of my drinking. I ended up in prison a few times. It looked worse than that. And I had padded cells. You know, and that's where I ended up. But I was being treated as a chronic depressive. And they were going to do electric shock treatment on me. But this voice, this voice in my head, kept telling me to be truthful, to tell the truth. I didn't know what the truth meant. I had no idea of what it meant to be truthful and honest because I had never been from a young age. I could not tell the truth. And I'm getting this voice. You know, but I'm in a lunatic asylum, so I'm in the best place. But eventually, within a, a, you know, it got so bad that I asked to see the psychiatrist. I am timing myself. And um, I told him that I had a drink problem and, and I wanted help. I was more shocked than he was when I, those words came out of my mouth because, wow, I can't do that. Drink has been my constant friend for 30 years. It's helped me. It can't be the problem. And here I am telling psychiatrist, I have a drink problem and I want help. Well, they changed the medication and detox me. And I have my, the middle of the three guys, brothers in Ireland, is a psychiatric nurse, or he was back then. And I rang him. Now, bearing in mind, I didn't know my mom had been an alcoholic and was in AA. I also didn't know that two of my brothers started Alateen in the Midlands of Ireland. 
Well, when I rang my brother to say, this is where I am, um, this is why, they're talking about letting me out. I said, will you come and speak to them in psychic language so they don't let me out? And this guy started praising God and laughing and clapping. He's having a party. He said, we've waited all our days for you to admit you have a problem. We've all known it. You know, I'm the last to know. Well, he did come up to Shrewsbury from where he lived. And whatever he said, they didn't let me out for a few months. You know. Now, I have learned that seeds get planted. As my head cleared in that hospital, I did go to meetings. They did come and take me out of the locked ward to meetings. But I started to think back to the 80s and to the guy who tried to help me. I was able to do my first three steps. Truthfully, honestly, without reservation. I was powerless over alcohol. I look back, I never had one drink. When I had one, that was it. All bets were off. I never left the pub. I left every night in blackout. My life was unmanageable. Three divorces and I'd lost millions. So, you know, the proof was there and I'd been homeless. Power greater than me, restore me to sanity. I am in a lunatic asylum. I must be insane, but my head is clearing that something is more powerful than me. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Now, the words, God as I understand them, played a great importance to me. You know, I was brought up Irish Catholic. And when I left Ireland, I turned my back on all that because you know, that I was educated by Christian brothers and nuns and who beat hell out of me. So I didn't want any of that. But I did try to go back to the religion of my parents. I was a bit confused in the early days. And it, it didn't work for this guy. It didn't work. You know. I've had my own journey. I have a power greater than me that I call God. You know, and, and I go to a free church, and that suits me. That's just for me. But I got out of that hospital after a few months, and I moved back down with my ex. And, but one day while I was up there in that hospital, my ex and my daughter was five by this time, came to take me out for the day. Now, I, I didn't believe anybody, you know, took any notice of what I drank. But when I got out of the car in the middle of Shrewsbury Town Centre, this five-year-old girl grabbed my hand and goes, Dad, please don't go for a drink. She begged me. Oh, how small did I feel that a five-year-old was affected that much? She had to visit me in prison when she was two years old. You know, never bothered me that, but her sulky. Don't go for a drink, you know. I walked her down the aisle a few years ago, you know, and she has two children that I get on great with. She lives not far from me. But miracles and miracles have happened since I came into this fellowship. You know, I went back to that lady and 
I wasn't the same person, so we didn't last together very long. We are still friends today, my ex and I. I had WhatsApps from her tonight, you know. But I started my recovery. I went back to that meeting that I used to go to in, in Boreham Wood. The gentleman who tried to help me then was no longer there. He'd moved away. And there was an old dear lady there called Bridie. My mother's name was Bridie. And Bridie informed me one night that I used to turn up in blackout at an AA meeting and tell them I was drunk as a skunk, telling them I was okay. That has got to be a crazy thing for an alkie to do, you know, going to AA meetings in blackout. Unbelievable. But, you know, my recovery started in there. But I didn't get a sponsor, but I had a group of friends who were on my case, you know. I eventually got round to doing my fourth step. It took a few years to do that. And then I did my fifth step. I did some of it with a counselor and, and some of it with a monk in Ireland. Yeah. One of the biggest miracles in my recovery, now bearing in mind my father and I could never be in the same house together. We fought whenever I turned up in Ireland. I have had heart attacks and all sorts of other stuff while I was drinking and he never came over to visit me. When I got out of that hospital, he flew over. And I met him at Heathrow. Now, my dad was bigger than me at the time. And I was terrified. What was he going to say? I oh, just, I was shaking. They came through the arrivals, and it still gets me. And um, I was 40 years old. He put his arms around me and told me he loved me. My perception was he hated me. He had never stopped loving me. He was just frustrated. And he'd learned from my mother not to enable me. So whenever I asked for money, or I never got it, you know. But for some reason, you know, when I said I wasn't going to do it, oh, I'm going to try it this time, people believed me, and, and he believed me. He became my best friend. My absolute best friend, you know, we spoke every week. We spoke every week, you know. He became a great man. And my three brothers became my friends. We are a family. We're in touch all the time now. I get invited to Ireland instead of when I'd arrived, being asked when was I leaving, you know. They want to see their eldest brother. And I got a job. In sobriety, I didn't go back truck driving. And I got a, I had to eat humble pie. I got a job as a handyman for a, a major high store retailer. I swallowed my pride. And within a short time, I, I got quite a bit of promotion. When I retired five years, six years ago, you know, I was a facilities manager looking after Millions of pounds worth of stuff. I'd done 10 years working for the Ministry of Defence. I had security clearance in recovery. That got me into Buckingham Palace and places like that with no questions asked. Because when I filled in security clearance papers, I told the truth. 
I've said I'd been in prison. I've said I've done this. I've done that with a covering letter for the person who was going to vet me, explaining it all, and that I was in recovery. You know, and I got the clearance because I was being honest. You know, and I got married for the fourth time 17 years ago to a lady in this fellowship. We got divorced this year. I can't blame the alcohol. It's Joe. <laughs> I'm not a Marian type. But we're friends. You know, we're friends. She lives nearby. I was helping her out last week on some issues in the house. But another miracle 14 years ago, a dear friend of, in the fellowship was killed one night by a drink driver. And the next night, I was actually booked to do a chair at his home group. A very emotional meeting, extremely emotional. And I spoke about families, and I told people how my siblings and I are back friends, and my father, my relatives. Well, not my father. My father passed away by then. And um, going home, my phone bleeped, and my wife picked it up. She said, oh, the message said, hello, Joe, this is Tess. I'm married to your son. We want to get in touch. Well, I had tried to get in touch in recovery, and I'd sent cards and stuff like that. And they all came back unopened and not wanted on them. And I rang my daughter-in-law that night, and we had a long conversation. And what transpired is his three children have been going, look, we know mum's dad, but we don't know yours. And for two years, he wouldn't speak about it, wouldn't let them contact me. But eventually he relinquished, not long. And um, but she, Tess was telling me, look, he's not ready to talk to you yet, but we are. The kids want to see you. And we had a lovely conversation. Well, the next day I'm at work and I, I was in charge of a, a military base and my internal military phone rang. And I picked it up, said my name, and this voice, hello, Joe, this is David. And I nearly died. This was my son. Uh, he is 180 miles from me. He had gone through the military directory to find my direct line. And we had a long conversation on the phone. But he called me Joe. And then we went down to, no, they came up to see us at Easter. and We went out for a meal and it, at the three children. And they were lovely and a good time and Easter eggs and hugs and that. And we went down at Christmas and gave out the presents and my daughter-in-law said, don't worry about him calling you Joe. He tells his mates about his old man. This was 14 years ago. I was younger then. And um, he gave me a bracelet that said, Dad. Then one day he rang me. And when he went to say goodbye, he said, I love you, Dad. And he hung up. He was up here 
with his wife and youngest daughter three weeks ago to see how I am. Now I'm single. You know, and they took me out from him. When we speak, it's always I love you, Dad. My sister, my his sister, is living with a dr uh, drug addict. She doesn't want to know me, and that's okay. I can accept that. I have learned acceptance in this fellowship. I've accepted I'm an alcoholic. Whatever is thrown at me, I've learned to deal with it. But I've got good friends today. You know, and there's one in particular in here tonight, and. You know, we share the same, it's been through what I've been through and, and helped me go through it. You know, and I found that happens, you know. 24 years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer of my kidneys. I was six years sober. And it went through all the tests and they were going to initially remove my kidney. And I was at a meeting one night, and eventually the surgeon said, you know, I'm going to save half your kidney. We're going to take a bit longer and a bit more care. And I was at a meeting, and that particular Tuesday meeting, and another friend, I told him. And he said, are you going to tell the group? And I went, no. I said, why not? I said, I don't want pity, and I, I don't want to upset them, you know. And this was a mild-mannered person. He did not swear at me and tell what bloody right have I got to decide what people think? Just tell them. So I did. Well, afterwards, a lady came up to me who I've never seen before. I've never seen again. She said, oh, 12 years ago, I had my kidney, one of my kidneys removed, and I'm still here. And I've gone... Okay, <laughs> I'll be all right. And I was, 24 years later, I'm still here. You know, I've had cancer since then, and miracle happened, and that's gone. You know, I've had very serious illnesses, but I have a belief that gets me through them. You know, I have so many friends. You know? We were talking about this at a meeting last night. You know, I was told when I came in, for hopefully the last time, I'll never be alone again. I can be on my own, but I'm not alone. I have all of you. I have a worldwide fellowship. You know, I've been to meetings in the most awesome places in the world. My last honeymoon was in Hawaii, and before. We left the UK. I got a list of meetings. And I remember walking through a park near Waikiki Beach looking for a meeting and couldn't find it. And I was with my, my damn wife. So I asked this road sweeper. And the name of the meeting was the 12 Coconuts. And he said, yeah, sure. It's over there on the beach by the 12 coconut trees. It went, <laughs> Bob, it was so obvious. But I was conditioned to old church hall, village halls, or whatever in the UK to stand in a circle in God's meeting room at the end of a meeting with at least a hundred saying the Lord's Prayer lifted me so much. 
Yeah. I've been to meetings in Sydney. I've been in Wyoming, all over the shop. Wherever I go in this world, I make sure there's meetings nearby or there's somebody in that country I can contact if I feel threatened or upset or just need to share. You know, I've had miracle upon miracle. This divorce has been painful, very, very painful. But I haven't thought of a drink. I've thought of other things, but I've not thought of a drink. But I've managed to get through that. I've handed it over. I've accepted. And once the paperwork comes through and, and that, even my ex, now the tension, the frustration and everything has gone and we're able to be in one another's company. That's a miracle. She doesn't want to stick a knife in my back, you know. And she knows that if there's, she can call if there's anything need doing. You know, I've got lots of friends. I'll just finish on this, you know. My life has been blessed. But this alcoholism and this alchemy, you know, I can ruin it. I was asked yesterday or on Thursday, do I still go to meetings or how often? I said I go about four or five times a week. Some of them on Zoom, some face to face. I don't need to go. I now go because I want to. And also, I take to heart the saying that came out at the 1965 Toronto Convention. The theme for that convention was responsibility. And the chair of the House Committee was tasked with coming up with something. And that's where they came. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA to be there. For that, I am responsible. I take that personal. I try to help people. But I've also learned by listening to wise heads that if somebody doesn't want helping, don't waste your time on them. Go and find the person that does. You know. My home group is on a Friday evening on Zoom. And I was on here one Friday evening and a message came through from the daughter of a cousin of mine. And I rang, we started messaging after the meeting and it transpired. She admitted she had a drink problem and her mother suggested ring Cousin Joe. That girl is over six months sober. Now. She messaged me tonight. She's just been in Thailand for the last, or Thailand and Vietnam for three weeks. Sober. How good is that? You know, we don't know how our message will be received. We don't know if our message will be received. And it's like me, you know. My friend passed a message to me. It took nine years for it to sink in. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. It will work. It will work. You know, people trust me today. I'm so busy in retirement. It's, you know, I can, but just quickly, and I will finish. When I had that three or four years, I didn't go back to Ireland. 
I apparently would ring my, my brothers sometimes at two or three o'clock in the morning telling them I want my share of the business, you know, or, or it'll, it's my business because it's the same. My dad's name was the same as me. Well, my middle brother, the, the middle of the three in Ireland, it's confusing. He rang me at half past eight one Saturday morning to have a chat. And I said, brother, don't you remember that I am retired and half eight in the morning doesn't exist? He said, I'm getting my own back for the two and three o'clock in the morning. You used to ring me when you were drunk. That is the relationship I have today. I can ask my brothers for anything, any help whatsoever. You know, as soon as they found out I was getting divorced again, they invited me to go and live in Ireland. I've lived in England 54 years, so I'm staying here. You know, I love my life today. I love my sobriety today. And I love each and every one of you. And thank you for asking me to share. Take care. I'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.